a remote fantastical kingdom far from Europe's chancelleries of power. An ancient castle where secrets are walled up. An unpopular monarch on the eve of his coronation. A ruling class of plotters and would-be usurpers. And a gentleman adventurer on holiday. No, not Ruritania in the 19th century, but the United Kingdom in the 21st. Stein's new book, The Prisoner of Windsor, is a contemporary inversion of Anthony Hope's classic, The Prisoner of Zender. In the original, an English gentleman on vacation is called upon to stand in for his lookalike, the King of Ruritania, at his coronation. Over a century later, a Ruritanian on vacation in London is called upon to return the favour and stand in for an Englishman in an absurd, fantastical kingdom where Brexit never quite happened. Plots are afoot. The Prisoner of Windsor by Mark Stein. Available in hardback and digital editions or for a personally autographed copy, go to steinonline.com. The Stein Online Clubland Q&A begins right now. Welcome along. October 27th, 2023. Three days from the commencement of my trial at the District of Columbia Superior Court. It is 3 p.m. North American Eastern Time here in New Hampshire, which I shall not see again until Thanksgiving. 4 p.m. in the beautiful Canadian Maritimes. 4.30 p.m. In fabulous Newfoundland and beyond the Americas, 8 p.m. in London, 9 p.m. in Paris, 10 p.m. in Kiev and Jerusalem, because it's the time zone where they hold the wars. 10.30 p.m. in Tehran for all you Newfoundlanders who uh, head to Iran to see whether the half-hour time zone there complicates the Mullahs' uh, dealings with the lads of Hamas and Hezbollah. Midnight 45 in Kathmandu for all you Iranians who moved to Nepal to check out the quarter-hour time zone. 3 a.m. in Singapore and Honkers. 6 a.m. in Sydney and Melbourne. 8 a.m. in Auckland. And an even more convivial hour for the Kippers and Kedgeri in His Majesty's dominions across the Pacific. Great to be back with you 450 years ago, this very day, October 27th, 1573, Laurentius Petri died in Uppsala, just north of Stockholm. He was the first reform archbishop of Uppsala, appointed by King Gustav to be primate of Sweden, and with that appointment, Sweden 
went Protestant. From its base in Uppsala, the Lutheran Church remained the established state church in Sweden until the turn of this century. In the last 20 years, membership of the Church of Sweden has declined from over 80% of the population to just over 50%. Any guesses as to what will be the state church in Sweden by the turn of the next century? Well, earlier this year in Uppsala, one of the city's new Muslim schools, the Imanskollen, the School of Belief, uh, had to be closed on the advice of the Swedish security service because it was, quote, radicalizing the children. Arabic was more common a language of instruction than Swedish. Swedish national holidays went unobserved. Girls were encouraged not to participate in any school activities at all, and pupils uh, were likewise advised to, quote, express negative opinions of Swedish society. The death of the West, the biggest story of our time and all but unreported in our crapped-out media. Terrible times here and there, mass murder, not too far from where I sit in Lewiston, Maine, uh, where... People in this office have uh, have family members. The killer is still on the loose 48 hours later, which is unusual in these situations. Meanwhile, in the Middle East, Israel's response to Hamas seems to have been stalled by pressure from the White House. Thank you all for your uh, kind comments about my video deposition under oath in uh, global warmonger Michael Mann's aforementioned defamation suit against me. We've aired parts one and two. Uh, you can find them on the homepage. The conclusion can be seen exclusively at Stein Online over the weekend. And then on Monday, against the advice of my doctors in France, I shall go on trial at the District of Columbia Superior Court, accused of defaming uh, Mr. Mann, the uh, creator of the hockey stick. The fourth trial judge. Savor that phrase, because fourth trial judge is a phrase that does not exist anywhere else in the common law world. Uh, the fourth trial judge has issued his uh, pre-trial order. It was just the other day. It's full of delights. He demanded uh, the parties agree to a five-man jury. Five-man jury. I was rather annoyed by this and told the judge that five isn't a jury, it's a bridge party with someone to refill the drinks. Uh, the fourth trial judge also managed, in his proposed summons to the jury, to confuse me and my co-defendant Rand Simberg and to attribute Rand's words to me. This was the mistake our more elderly listeners may recall, that the very first trial judge an incompetent boob called Natalia Combs-Green. Uh, this was the mistake that she made way back in 2012. So here we are over a decade later, four trial judges, five appellate judges, $5 million in legal fees, and 11 years of my life just to come full circle with the fourth trial judge reprising the original error of the first trial judge in this case. 
what do I always call it? The dirty, stinking, rotten, corrupt American, quote, justice system. I may be being too kind. Uh, as that five-man jury bollocks emphasizes, it's a perversion, a gross perversion of the legal system America inherited, which is why legalistic views of basic liberties, such as promoted by the Constitution waivers, Mark Levin and Andy McCarthy and Alan Dershowitz, are all they those legalistic views of basic liberties have failed to secure those liberties. Uh, let us get to your questions before my bitterness seeps out of the speakers and starts dripping its toxins onto your toes. Uh, Steve from Manhattan writes, Mark, I'm sorry about the court ordeal that awaits and the successive ordeals to follow. My question, yeah, but Steve is referring there to the fact that it's a given I understand from man's attorneys that regardless of whether he wins or loses, he's going to appeal. And if you're wondering why the hell would he do that? Well, because he wants uh, a whole big bunch of money and he's not likely to get it from Rand Simberg and me. So he's going to appeal to get National Review and Competitive Enterprise Institute uh, back in the case and uh, take them for uh, $10 million or something. Anyway, Steve from Manhattan says, Mark, I'm sorry about the court ordeal that awaits and the successive ordeals to follow. My question, if one wanted to travel to D.C., if one wanted to travel to D.C., are you sick? Consult a doctor if you start feeling things like that. Uh, if one wanted to travel to D.C. to be in the public area of the... I should be careful what I'm saying because hasn't one of the judges in one of these ghastly Trump cases told Trump that he's not allowed to say mean things about the District of Columbia. <laughs> I don't think a similar order applies to me, or if it does, and I've, I just failed to notice it in my inbox, I'm in huge trouble. Anyway, if one wanted to travel to D.C. to be in the public area of the courtroom, potentially to provide some on-the-scene moral support with some praying added for good measure. I don't think you're allowed to pray in American courtrooms, are you? Uh, how would one find the correct courtroom and the times of the trial sessions? Whether or not I make it in person, I know I will not be alone in praying for your attorneys to be at their professional best and for the judge to be overcome by an almost unheard of burst of judicial fairness. Well, if you're really that interested, it's at the... Uh, District of uh, Columbia Superior Court, which is a great big building. You can't miss it. I'd like to, but I can't. Um, and it's in courtroom 518, which is on the fifth floor. Courtroom 518. And... Um, uh, if you forget that number, 518 on the fifth floor, but if you forget it, as you go into this lousy courthouse, on the right-hand side, there's a sort of electronic monitor with the names of all the parties there. So if you just look on that, it'll say Stein, Mark, courtroom 518. Chris Oldham writes, Hi, Mark. Though I left the practice of law over a decade ago, 
Some habits die hard, so I spent some time this past week perusing the online docket for man's lawsuit against you. It appears that though you were represented by various counsel for much of the case, <laughs> by various counsel for much of the case, uh, you mean for 11 years, um, Chris says it appears that you are going to handle the actual trial pro se but with an attorney providing trial assistance as needed. I'm curious why you decided to proceed in this fashion, which is unique in my experience. As demonstrated by your deposition testimony, you are well equipped to defend yourself with help to handle the technical legal aspects of a trial. I only wish there were a way to watch when you have the chance to finally personally confront man on cross-examination. I join the many others out here who wish you good health and fervently hope you achieve the vindication you deserve at the conclusion of this outrageously and absurdly long ordeal. It won't be the conclusion. As I said, uh, we know the other side is going to appeal whether they win or lose, which is great. Um, you you asked, pro se means I'm representing myself, and, and you asked why am I doing We We have a lawyer, you know, to... Uh, uh, to, uh, uh, what did you put, provide trial assistance as needed. I'll tell you why. It's very, it's not very difficult. The money ran out. You know, uh, when you've been in litigation for 11 years, it's bloody, in the most expensive jurisdiction in the world, America, it's a bloody expensive business. And millions and millions and millions of dollars that, you know, could have gone uh, could have gone to my kids you know i don't need to do since i had my heart attacks you know oh perhaps it'd be prudent to do some estate planning well i don't really need to do any estate planning uh because all <laughs> the stuff i would have left my kids has been blown on this stupid case um and so uh, i don't think i i think i was so the money ran out i think i was overseas being treated for my health problems or something and so my associates had a uh, had a meeting with the lawyers and I should say by the way if you're in the district of Columbia it's an expensive extra expensive business because you have to have one local lawyer so you can't say oh I'm being sued so I'll have my lawyer represent me you have to have also have an additional lawyer from the district of Columbia so it's not a being I have no connection with the District of Columbia. I don't go there. I haven't gone there at all in the last I went there for a bit in the early days of the war on terror because fellows like Bush and Rumsfeld wanted to have a word with me. But I haven't been there since since those days. I don't go there, I don't live there. Um, but that's where the trial is being held. So the money ran out. And I wasn't on this call, but I have heard you know, from uh, the people who were on it, how it went. And my uh, associates asked, uh, were advised by the lawyers. I <laughs> uh, say, well, all you need to do is raise another million dollars to get us through, <laughs> through the trial. Oh, great. Um, and I thought about it and I'd sort of had enough. And I'll tell you why I had enough. I probably shouldn't be saying all this stuff. But as you know, I had a couple of heart attacks. And I was um, in France when I had the second really bad heart attack and came within 15 minutes of death. And 
I thank Nurse Audrey for saving my life, and then I think I thank her for coming with me to the from the little, you know, county hospital to the big specialist cardio hospital. Uh, and Nurse Audrey asked me when I sort of collapsed in her arms at the door of the hospital. Uh, she asked me if I had a French medical card, and I said no. And she said, uh, uh, what's your name? Because she wanted to make sure that she had the proper name for me uh, in case things went bad uh, at the big hospital. And after that, I never had an heard another word from the French medical system about how I was going to pay for them saving my life. Not another word. It's not like all the checking in America about the um, uh, about a, 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 where you got to do the Blue Cross Blue Shield thing and all of that. Uh, so I, when I eventually left the hospital and then uh, some time later returned to New Hampshire, I was thinking, oh, God, at some point they're going to they're going to send me a bill for this thing. I, I was like in the ICU for over a week. What's that going to cost? And <laughs> so I was a little kind of nervous about that. And then uh, eventually the bill came for saving my life, 4,300 euros, which is about five grand, which is about the cost of your copay on an X-ray if you have Blue Cross Blue Shield. So I thought that was a pretty good deal. 4,300 euros for saving my life. As I said, in dollars, that's about US dollars, that's about five grand. At the same time, the, um, I was unable to attend a court hearing, I think in January, for this stupid man case, which he had demanded this judge that I turn up in person. And, uh, and so my lawyers were obliged to file two motions. And they filed two of the weediest, lamest motions that I've ever read, frankly. The only strong thing about them was my cardiologist in Montreal, who was absolutely outraged and basically told the judge and John Williams, Michael Mann's awful lawyer, that they basically, it was going to suit them for me to die. And that's why they teamed up to upgrade some crappy defamation case into a capital offense. That was the only good bit in it. But the lawyers were just weedy. And as a result, it obliged me. I don't want to go into a whole lot of uh, detail about this, but it obliged me when I was terribly sick uh, to deal with a lot of stressful uh, activities about having to hand over power of attorney and all kinds of things. And I just thought, I, I just compared those two things. Uh, 5,000 bucks for Nurse Audrey and this fabulous hospital to save my life and 50 grand for a couple of lousy, unreadable motions about saving my life. And I just thought, you know, I've, paid, I've spent enough on this. I've spent enough on this. And, you know, I didn't feel we were getting anywhere, and uh, I made a decision, and the decision is what it is, and we'll see how it goes. Juan Otero says, I just ordered my stick. Yeah, that's the Liberty stick, that we have a special limited... Uh, 
edition number of those sticks. I think we'd had these, I think we ordered these somewhere back around the start of the case. I had a sort of idea for it. And it shows uh, Magna Carta, and I think it's got the English Bill of Rights and the U.S. Constitution on there. So just, I'm going to, if those of you who want to wave your Constitution at me, you'd be much better off waving it in the form of a Stein Online Liberty Stick, a uh, limited edition, which we uh, have over at the Stein store. Juan Otero says, I just ordered my stick, and I am a better person for it. There I said it. Good luck, Mark, on your endeavours in that rotten city. I lived there for six years. If there is a place that asks for mask and hand sanitizer, it is that. The judge will be wearing a mask, and he has ordered all the witnesses to wear a mask. So the old thing about being able to judge a fellow's demeanour, which is, you know, one of the points about court cases is that the parties are confronting each other and each other's witnesses and the juries judge those witnesses by their demeanor. And if you have the nose and the cheeks and the mouth covered, that's a lot of facial demeanor gone. But that's how it is in the District of uh, Columbia. You lived there for six years? That's amazing. By, by the way, it is, uh, you know, if you think about it, uh, it's an expensive city. If you have no connection with it and you don't live there, it's an expensive city to be tried in. The judge has already made provision for the case to resume on the Monday after Thanksgiving if we have not finished it by then. Okay, so we're into late November, early December. He just thinks it doesn't matter whether you stay at Motel Crapola around the back of the freight yards. Uh, if you've got, um, if you're, if you're having to s stay somewhere for a month, that in itself is a, uh, is a huge, uh, is a huge expense. Kelly Harbison says, always glad to hear that you are still with us, Mark. Melissa Howes has been doing an outstanding job narrating a disgrace to the profession. Will there ever be a part two, perhaps a recap of the trial? Take Michael E. Mann to the cleaners for all our sakes. Yes, the, the full title of A Disgrace to the Profession is A Disgrace to the Profession, the world scientists in their own words on Michael E. Mann, his hockey stick and their damage to science, volume one. Uh, and I had intended, I've got all the material for volume two. And uh, then uh, Carrie Katz decided to sue me. So, you know, uh, well, we, we, will, we have got the material for volume two and we probably should do a volume two. Chris Davis says, Mark, all the very best in taking down man. If there is a more obnoxious oaf on either side of the Atlantic than that buffoon, please don't point them in my direction. On the subject of buffoons, oh, we'll be here all night if you bring that up, Chris. On the subject of buffoons, the British press are reporting that Boris Johnson is joining the Tories and Trivia Channel at GB News in 2024. Some marriages are just made in heaven, aren't they? Boris has always been a bounder, a cad and a chancer, so he should fit right in. What say you? Keep well, Mark. We're all rooting for you. You're the man, not the man. M-A-N-N. -N. Cheers, Chris. Um, yeah, it was announced today. 
Boris Johnson is joining GB News. He'll be, I didn't read all the details, but I gather he'll be hosting a show. You know, Boris is, Boris schemed all his adult life to become prime minister. Then he became prime minister and he blew it. And he left lasting damage in the form of uh, net zero, in the form of the bungled Brexit, in the damage he inflicted on the union of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, whereby he, he basically screwed over Northern Ireland in order to uh, get Brexit done for England, Scotland and Wales. Uh, awful, unprincipled man, never believed in anything except what's good for him. And, um, you know, and lazy too, actually. Uh, if you can, in the old days at GB News, see if you can come up with a uh, the episode in which I talked to Conrad Black. It might even have been the day that Boris uh, agreed to quit. Um, but where I bring up what uh, Con I asked Conrad about, something our mutual friend Dan Colson who ran the Telegraph Group in London, uh, when, I, when he uh, said he was going to make Bor uh, Boris editor, and I said, are you sure about that? He's one of the laziest buggers anybody's ever known. He, and Dan said to me, you don't get it, Mark. Uh, Boris can pick up the phone and call anybody in London and get them to write for The Spectator. And Conrad and I discussed this because... On that particular night, Boris couldn't get anybody to return his calls anywhere. You know, so now the failed prime minister, the one who did all the jabbity, jabbity, jabby, who came up with the jab mandates, right? You know, you should see on Twitter what uh, my friends who are among the many victims of those semi-mandatory COVID. Well, they weren't really quite mandatory. No, 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 unless you wanted to get on a plane or keep your job or go to this place, go to that place. No, no, of course not. They weren't. You know, 3%, I see the latest booster in America, 3% have taken it up and 97% have said, screw you, because out there in the wider world, the truth of these vaccines is known. So Captain Vaccine Boris Johnson is now going to be, you know, the, Tories and trivia, Tories and trivia. The real opposition in at the Palace of Westminster is Andrew Bridgen, the Reclaim Party MP who held a debate. I mean, he was basically debating himself in an empty House of Commons about uh, the excess deaths. Boris basically is the guy who gave us the excess deaths. And Andrew Bridgen is the only guy who wants to talk about it. You know who I'd rather see on TV? It's not difficult to figure out. Uh, Joy Tamor-Schwiesen, I hope I pronounced that correctly, said, uh, Good galloping gravy boats, Mark. Have you seen that Soft Cockalos has hired Boris Johnson? Yeah, yeah. I don't think it's going to work for them. Uh, Alison Castellina. <laughs> but thank you for reminding me of uh, Angela Softkokolos, uh, Joy. Uh, Alison Castellina says, So, Lawrence Fox, are you, are being replaced at GB News by Bojo with his own show 
commentating on the US election next year and, of course, ad nauseum on Ukraine. If you thought that GB News was set up to be a fresh, free, alternative, non-establishment voice supporting free speech, how come the former PM Boris Johnson, purveyor of lockdowns, vaccines and Ofcom COVID directives, now joins Nigel Farage, who put him there on the semi-official TV channel of the now almost defunct Conservative Party. Do you think there is a hidden plan afoot? Will this ruin GB News for good as millions turn off at the sight of the Downing Street cake eater par excellence? The interesting thing here is the dynamic between Farage and Johnson, because it's mimicking what happened uh, during the Brexit debate, during the long years leading up to the Brexit referendum. And Nigel did all the hard work for that, starting in the early 90s. He, he, he's the guy who came up, made UKIP, United Kingdom Independence Party, a force to be reckoned with in politics, uh, and pressed the case and uh, siphoned off enough people who are otherwise tribal Tories, members of the Conservative Party, for his party Uh, And they were mocked and belittled by uh, snotty dweebs like David Cameron. And Boris Johnson, for the most part, sat all that out. Then uh, David Cameron allowed himself to be tricked into a referendum campaign. And he, he agreed to it, assuming that they would win the referendum. That's how out of it these buggers are. And, uh, As you know, Boris, uh, for his Telegraph column, uh, he wrote because he he, Boris has no principles. He has no firm beliefs. When he says he sees himself as the Winston Churchill de nos jours, it's not because he wants to win the Second World War. He, He just sees himself as Churchill, as a big, famous celebrity politician. That's it. He has no firm beliefs on anything. Uh, And he has uh, what uh, Field Marshal Haig said of Lord Derby. Uh, He bears, uh, he's like a feather, a feather cushion. He bears the imprint of whoever last sat on him. And the person who's sitting on him uh, most of the time these days is his current wife, Carrie, the daughter of my old uh, editor at The Independent, Matthew Simons. Uh, so uh, there's going to be a lot of that on today's show. So he bears the imprint of Carrie Simons with regards to Net Zero and all the other bollocks. So the idea that he's providing an alternative, he's the guy who buggered Britain, who got us into this mess. And I know there are some people, oh, Boris is great, Boris is great. He got this fantastic uh, electoral victory in 2019. Yes, and then he blew it. So good luck getting anything worth uh, watching out of the Bojo show. Um, thank you, uh, thank you for those questions. We will we'll we'll turn gratefully to some non-UK matters in uh, just a moment, uh, and in fact, we'll turn to a non-UK member of the Mark Stein Club. I don't know whether she's got a question coming up, but in case she hasn't. I would like to thank Brandy Edwards, a Mark Stein club member from Washington State. I'm so grateful. I've had, a, as you know, a pretty 
difficult year. And actually, the uh, kindness and affection of so many Stein Online regulars has been a big part of what's kept me going. And I think of that and I appreciate it even more on the eve of this ludicrous trial in an unimpressive jurisdiction. Uh, but Brandy Edwards is also a Mark Stein cruiser. And when Brandy was on our Adriatic cruise this summer, she presented me with a lovely and highly professional album uh, from our 2019 Alaska cruise with all kinds of great photographs, including McIntyre and McKittrick and Anthony Watts on our climate change show. Two thirds of those panelists are scheduled to testify at trial. If you're thinking, ah, I don't, don't know why if I want to go to the District of Columbia just to see Stein, well, you'll get to see Steve McIntyre and Ross McKittrick in action too. Anyway, it was a lovely gift, uh, and I enjoyed all all the memories uh, looking through it in, in uh, Trieste. And this week, Brandy sent another terrific album, with pictures of this summer's Adriatic cruise. Great photos of our cruisers, having a laugh with Ava, Leilani, Alexandra, Dominique, Mr. Snurdly, all our guests, um, uh, Tal and Lola doing their Hank Williams tribute. Fabulous pictures. We may post a few of them. Uh, so I thank Brandy very much for that. In, in the old days, when Brandy asked a question on our Q&As, I'd sing a few bars of this song, but I am all out of puff these days. So here is the original with words and music by Elliot Lurie, who went on to become head of the music division at 20th Century Fox. This is an unusual song because Brandy is a barmaid down by the docks and she enjoys flirting with the old sea dogs passing through. But the man she really pines for has only one love in his life, the sea. A monster number one in 1972 for Looking Glass. There's a port on a western bay and it serves a hundred ships a day. Lonely sailors pass the time away and talk about their home. There's a girl in this harbor town And she works laying whiskey down They say brandy, fetch another round She serves them whiskey and wine The sailors say brandy, you're a fine girl There's a braided chain made of finest silver from the north of Spain. A locket that bears the name of a man that Brandy loved. He came on a summer's day bringing gifts from far away. But it made it clear he couldn't stay. No horror was his home. The sailor said, Brandy. Yeah, Brandon used to 
Especially for Mark Stein club member Brandy Edwards in Washington State, thanking Brandy for that excellent photograph album of the Mark Stein Adriatic Cruise from this summer. Brandy, you're a fine girl. Indeed, you are. You know, that song did wonders for the popularity of Brandy as a name. Uh, When the song was written in 1971, Brandy was merely the 353rd most popular baby girl's name in America. The year after it hit number one, it rocketed up the baby charts to the 82nd most popular girl's name. I wonder if our friend Brandy Edwards was among the beneficiaries of that trend. There aren't a lot of songs called Brandy, but the two most popular ones were both written in 1971. How about that? So here's the second half of our Brandy double play, although you may know this song by an entirely different title. I remember all my life Raining down as cold as ice Shadows of a man A face through a window Crying in the night As night goes into morning Just another day
without taking but I sent you away because I was expecting someone with an entirely different name Scott English who isn't English uh, singing a song he wrote with Richard Carr who is Uh, and a few years later Barry Manilow liked the song but felt that Looking Glass had cornered the market on hits named Brandy Uh, so Uh, He wanted to change the lady's name to Mandy, and the rest is history. No disrespect to the late Mr. English, but I have to say that that record pales in comparison to the version I heard his co-writer, Richard Kerr, sing at the Society of Distinguished Songwriters, the Sods, annual ladies' night in London last year. It was uh, my last social event before my health entirely shut down my social life. And I had a marvellous time. Actually, at my now I think about it, at my table was a chap who wrote another monster hit for Barry Manilow. Can't Smile Without You, uh, Jeff Morrow. The whole room was crawling with people who'd written hits for Barry Manilow. Anyway, uh, I would love to go to this year's dinner, but this bloody awful D.C. Superior Court trial uh, may well be chuntering on still. Richard Kerr and his family were having a very tough time of it a year ago, and his performance that night was full of emotion. I'd love to recall some piercing musicological insight from that evening, but unusually... Richard was late and missed the parade of King Sods at the start of the event. And when he got there, I was talking to Mrs. Kerr, and she said it was because their miserable London car service turned up late. And I said, oh, yeah, who was that? And she said, Addison Lee. And I said, oh, I hate those guys. They're the worst. Let's get a class action lawsuit going. I could do an hour on Addison Lee cars, but maybe we'll save it for our world's worst car service uh, special. That's a big 26-part series we're going to be launching just after Christmas. Uh, We'll have a bit more music later, also connected to the Sods Dinner, Society of Distinguished Songwriters, because as I said, it was my last night out, and uh, (laughs) given how long this bloody trial is going on for likely to remain so it is mark stein's clubland q a live around the planet 18 to 9 british summertime a little behind a lot ahead according to where you chance to be on this turbulent earth let us get back to your questions am says we in northern new england have been reeling this week from the massacre in Lewiston, Maine, as I'm sure you are as a New Englander. Prayers for all those affected 
and I hope that they find the SOB quickly. This guy had been committed this past summer. Of course, this will be used as an excuse to go after guns, but will mental health ever be addressed? Well, I think the answer to that is no, A.M., um, and you're right. It is. Uh, it's. It's pretty close to home. I. I see that uh, yesterday. So certainly, it was New Hampshire State Police helicopters uh, circling over the scene uh, in Lewiston. Because I take it, you know, the main. The main ones have to. The guys have to have a break and whatever you. So, New Hampshire State Police are lending assistance. Um, I'm wary about, with all these things, I'm wary about jumping in, these mass killings, because they get they get more mysterious. You know, what was the last one, the tranny killer? And we still haven't seen the killer's manifesto. And if the killer had had a manifesto with lots of, lots of references to Trump and Tucker Carlson and whoever, uh, I think it would have been out within 20 minutes. But instead, because it, it's unhelpful, it might increase transphobia. We're not being allowed to see it. And then we have that thing in Vegas. The guy shoots all these people, kills all these people from the Mandalay Bay Hotel, attending a country music concert. And we have all these stupid press conferences, which I really can't stand, where there's uh, representatives of 147 different government agencies all crowded behind to give do their two minutes of rubbish. And while they're all holding the uh, press conference with members of 147 agencies, uh, someone busts into the guy's house... Uh, which has no police around it because presumably they all want to be at the press conference and see themselves on CNN or whatever. And so the guy's house gets bust into and anything of interest taken and that event remains as mysterious as it was in the 24 hours after it happened. As I said, the interesting part of this is that the guy is still on the lam, uh, which is, uh, you know... What are we now? 48 hours later, which is unusual in these events. Um, possibly he's in New Hampshire by now. Possibly he's in Quebec or New Brunswick. Uh, I, he would be ill-advised, I would think, to go to uh, head south and go to Massachusetts or whatever. But he, he, seems, he, he seems to be of a different... In that respect, the guy who did this uh, has certainly been of a different order. But as I said, I prefer to, with these things, I prefer to wait. I believe on Twitter, they said he was some sort of convicted pedo. Uh, and in fact, that turns out to be uh, some guy with the same name or whatever it was. So I prefer just to sit back and wait until we have a little bit more to go on. I'm so bored by people just retreating to their tropes. But I do think AM is right that at a certain point, the you you have to rely on the if you if you want to exercise your second amendment rights you're relying on the republican party not to cave to pressures 
And if you look at those guys in Congress, that would seem to me not a thing you'd want to bet on. Adrian Gatti says, I think this is my first question for a live Q&A, though I never miss listening to one. Did you see that on his influential blog, former New York Times reporter Alex Berenson this week started a series on the West's demographic collapse? This is after he became a pariah from polite society for his attacks on the COVID shots. Do you think now that more and more people have seen the truth about COVID and seen Hamas mobs in New York make Jews hide in attics again, that they will be more willing to discuss other untouchable issues, such as admitting to having read America alone? Good luck in court. Do take care of yourself. We're praying for you as ever, says Adrian. Thank you very much for the prayers, which I will certainly need. Alex Berenson, you'll have seen with me on TV in various uh, contexts. As you say, he became a he's a New York Times guy and he's a novelist. He's not a bad. He writes or he wrote. I don't think he's writing them anymore. uh, Thrillers with a guy who. Uh, had been in Afghanistan in the army and had, uh, uh, I think, converted to Islam. And the, it, the the thrillers were about the sort of seductions of Islam versus the fact that he's, you know, trying on the terrorism and everything. They're interesting. I read a couple on long haul flights. Uh, when I and and uh, they were pretty good. Anyway, I had Alex on the show a couple of times. Uh, it wasn't the COVID shots. He started on the COVID. He was opposed to lockdown and the harms being done, not by COVID, but by the public policy response to COVID. And then he moved on to shots, and there was great resistance. I'm recalling this very faintly. But there was great resistance to letting him move on to that. So you'd book him, uh, the producers would book him to come and talk about, you know, the effects of lockdown. People weren't allowed to hold, have granny round for Thanksgiving or whatever. And then he'd want to move on to these, uh, the Pfizer and whatever. <laughs> and, uh, and at that point, the producers wanted to cut to break. That's my memory of it anyway. I may be wrong, or maybe wrong on that, but that's my memory of it. Um, and the inter- Veronica from New Zealand is a very perceptive person when it comes to the bad big picture, had said that the COVID and the vaccines were what had held the fractured right together these last three years. And what we've seen since then is like the resurgence of the neocons, you know, Lindsey Graham wanting boots. Every time I'm... Every time uh, I see Lindsey Graham on TV demanding boots on the ground in some or other pinprick on the map, um, I think America really is doomed. You know, I really, as long as Lindsey Graham still gets taken seriously on television, I'm not sure anything can be done for America. But anyway, uh, Veronica was talking about how COVID and the vaccines had held the right together these last three years. I'm not even sure, you know, Alex Berenson would think of himself as a man of the right. But in in a sense, what's happened uh, forces him to that posture because, you know, somehow it becomes a left-right thing whether you take the shots or not. 
then whether you're free to talk about taking this. Don't forget, Alex Berenson is a guy who got uh, clobbered on social media. You can't say this, you can't say that. No, that's the reason he's on Substack or whatever he's on now. So free speech, again, uh, which used to be the left used to at least defer to it. Then free speech, so-called, became misinformation, disinformation. And so that uh, that became some extreme, weird, alt-right thing. Uh, and as for the Hamas mobs making Jews hide in attics again, I'm, I'm beyond the Nazi analogies here, because as I said, whatever it is, a week and a half, two weeks ago, might even have been on this show. You know, the interesting thing about the Germans uh, is that uh, Herr Hitler's uh, government had to hold the 1C conference in secret, because if they'd gone out uh, and held a press conference on how they were going to kill all the Jews... Uh, your average German would have thought, oh, wait a minute, uh, I don't know whether that, um, you know, I've gone along with a lot of this, but uh, killing all the Jews, I don't know quite whether I'm on board with that. It's one thing, you know, to think about that nice Jewish couple who had the flat two floors up, and uh, for some reason or other, they don't seem to be there anymore. Uh, that's a sort of, you know, let's not get too curious about where they went or anything. But when you actually come out and say, we want to kill all the Jews, that's slightly different. Well, now we have people uh, whose bloodlust is on the streets of all major Western cities, including New York, which is the most Jewish city in the world outside of Israel. And John Podhoritz, uh, the editor of Commentary, John did a, uh, um, an editorial a column uh, a couple of days ago where he's speaking of Jews hiding in attics again. Yeah, uh, he's like Anne Frank. And he, he said he, he's sort of still slightly bewildered by it, but he's saying, yeah, this is, uh, this is slightly strange, isn't it? I'm in New York, which is the most Jewish city in the world outside of Israel, and I'm having to do the Anne Frank routine, and I'm being told I need to stay inside, not wear identifying marks of my faith in New York. Um. I'll tell you something else, you know, so I think Adrian's point, you know, Alex started with a specific problem with COVID and the response to COVID. And immediately all your lefty friends disown you. He wrote a novel during the COVID years. We talked about this on television. Uh, and the publisher complains to him that uh, because he's gone and expressed his view on COVID, the New York Times review of books and all these other people aren't going to review his books anymore. Uh, you know, uh, well, welcome to my world. <laughs> anyway, Adrian, uh, uh, Alex then, so you, there's a trend where you think, no, Naomi Wolf, it's the same sort of thing. You know, you, you, you dissent from one specific thing, and you're not allowed to do that because it's an all-or-nothing deal. It's a package deal. It's, it's not like the salad bar at Denny's. You can pick this, this, this. Oh, I don't think I'll have any of that today, though. It's not like the salad bar at Denny's. You know, you've got to take it all. Take what you're given. It's a set menu.
And I saw with Norman Fenton, uh, Norman uh, left a very, he left a very interesting comment, but he, I think he said variations on it. You, some of you will have met Norman because he happened to be on our cruise. Uh, and uh, he was very, he's been on the Mark Stein show. I didn't know he was coming on the cruise, but he was a very gregarious chap. And uh, a lot of a lot of people uh, liked him on the cruise. Norman, uh, on his Twitter feed, uh, just confined himself to talking about the COVID and the vaccines these last few years. And then, uh, when Hamas crossed into the bo- crossed the border of Israel and started chopping the heads off babies, he objected to that, and he was surprised that how many of his COVID and vaccine buddies parted with him on the question of Hamas. And I think this is, you know, what's worrying to me about this? I think there's two things. One of one of the problems, I think, is that uh, is is that Israel itself has softened alarmingly. There's a there's a there's a, a, a Hebrew word. I think it's normalut. Normalut, normalut. I may be mispronouncing it, but it is what a lot of Israelis wanted out of the Oslo Accords. They went along the Oslo Accords because they thought of themselves as a normal Western society, so they wanted to live like Norwegians or Belgians, and 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 so they went along with Oslo, thinking it offered a path to that. And so there is a soften. There's a softening. The Israeli uh, left has softened in uh in 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 certain ways over the last couple of decades that's one thing but in the west uh, in europe in north america australia it's even worse uh, they've imported people who want jews dead i mean that's not an exaggeration and at the same time uh Everybody under a certain age in those societies is uh, is hot for the pallies. So you have a situation where you can have a, a boomer, a pro-Israeli boomer Democrat voter, because that's just, you know, the Jews vote Democrat, so he likes the Jews, he's for Israel. But that guy's kids uh, will be a pro-Palestinian. It's almost like an age thing. It's almost like one of these generational markers where you can still find, you know, some uh, uh, great grandpa who thinks uh, the Sodomites are all going to burn in hell. And all his great grandkids think, ah, you know, that's 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 just great grandpa or whatever. It's become like a generational thing. Now, Adrian says uh, Alex Berenson has begun uh, writing about the West's demographic collapse. It's the big thing. The demographic energy in society, you know, because who's out in the street jumping up and down? It's not 87-year-olds. Uh, I said years ago, I think it's in America alone, actually, that, you know, when we're talking about the youths in France, you know, that it's not an 87-year-old with a walker who hobbles across the street and lobs a Molotov cocktail uh, into the police station and then tries to hobble back across the street before the blast from the explosion 
says the depends on his bottom. That's not the people doing that kind of thing, you know. So when we see these, oh, but, you know, uh, Muslims are only 8% of the Swedish population or whatever it is. No, what matter? Look at the schools. Look at the school populations in Europe and in the United States and then figure out what your future is likely to be. The sad thing is I wrote about this, I started writing about this 20 years ago now, and we have lost 20 years, and still the only people who want to write about it are, the, as Adrian puts it, the pariahs from polite society. I get, we're in the same situation as when the late Christopher Hitchens asked Tony Blair uh, uh, about the thesis of my book and whether the demographic transformation of the Western world was part of what Christopher called the European conversation when Tony Blair got together with his fellow PMs. And uh, Blair responded to him that it was part of the subterranean conversation, i.e. you still can't raise it in polite society. And that's where we are, 20 years on, uh, where you have to be a pariah before you start addressing this kind of stuff honestly. And in some way, the ones I hear interesting, I saw something, I think Laura Rosen-Cohen had a link to it, some proposal in Sweden to deport people who earn less than 2,000 euros a month, immigrants who earn less than... 2,000 euros a month because they're a drain on the public purse, which you didn't used to be able to do if you were an immigrant. I have no idea if that's true, and I have no idea if they could get away with doing deport because it would be about a third of all immigrants. Boom, gone, like that. But it is more likely a pushback against this is more likely to come from a country that has not been contaminated by the American and Anglosphere uh, framing of everything within a racial context. And you're more likely to get that in countries that have been immune to all the stuff generally about, you know, slavery and uh, Jim Crow and all that kind of thing, because uh, th there, there will be less pressure for, for something such as demographic transformation to be framed uh, as in, in the sort of Jim Crow uh, context. Um, but the demographic collapse of the West is super well advanced. Uh, Toby Pilling says, if the religion of the Aztecs was still practiced worldwide, do you think human sacrifice would be excused as an historical foible in the same way that the morally questionable tenets of Islam are? It's not, not actually historical. You can find judges in the West who uh, say that, you know, rape is just within the cultural tradition. Uh, there's a been a couple of German judges who've ruled this way who said that, oh, yeah, 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 okay, he did rape her, but rape is part of the cultural tradition of uh, Islam, so we're not going to do anything about it. And, you know, but that's basically what's going on on the streets. Yes, you know, uh, they, uh, they behead infidels, even infidel babies, but that's just part of their cultural tradition. This is... This is a dark, this is the dark surrender. This is going to become, this is the rolling stone that is going to gather an awful lot of moss 
in the years ahead. Again, I wrote about this 15 bloody years ago. So bored by it all. And I was saying that if you look at if you look at the conversions to Islam, the people who are doing it, it's not hard to predict, you know, that uh, once accommodations are made for Islam so that you have your break for uh, your, your prayers uh, and you all get, everyone goes to the prayer room to kneel down, pray, looking toward Mecca, uh, you're not going to want to be the only guy on the shop floor who doesn't go to the prayers, are you? You're going to stand out a bit. You're going to feel a bit awkward. So a lot of these guys, people of no faith, are going to be sort of stringing along with this stuff to one degree or another. And we see an ink. And once they do, some of them are going to be... It's like you, when you look at these pro, the death to the Jews protests. Uh, and yeah, a lot of them are guys who, you know, uh, are... Uh, Muslims of, of uh, immigrant extraction. Look at look at some of the young ethnic white people uh, in those demos going along with it. Uh, interesting. Uh, the notorious Mr. J says, wishing the best in your bout of lawfare against the man. Since you've been through the judicial ringer so often, do you have any ideas about how abuse of the tort system can be countered? The specter of slap suits must be a major way the powerful can suppress dissent from the wretched proles. Maybe the state should join the rest of the civilized world and adopt the loser pays principle. Well, I'm all in favor of that because right now there's absolutely no cost to, you know, I'm, as I said, I'm financially ruined by having been in this stupid case. Uh, I don't live in uh, the District of Columbia. Man doesn't live in the District of Columbia. Uh, but we've been there for 12 years because it's a crap hole of justice. And and uh, the fact of the matter is, if you've been in a case for 12 years, there's no no verdict matters because no verdict matters. Just doesn't because uh, you're already screwed. Um, so, yeah, I do believe in the loser pays. But this is the you know, we had this with, uh, by the way, I should say that in CRTV's, uh, CRTV, um, the the cases with Carrie Katz, I did wind up getting my legal fees because I think it's, uh, it's something to do with if you've got an arbitration contract that permits it. But the judges don't like it because they think the, oh, uh, but not having the loser pays rule. Let's say if you bring a case and you lose, and the other guy who's won has got $2 million in legal fees, anywhere else, you know, you get your legal fees paid, your attorney's fees and all the rest of it. And in America, you don't, because they say, oh, that preserves access to the justice system. Well, it isn't a justice system, so actually any prudent person would not want access to it. But it's a, it's a dis, I, I would be, uh, I don't, I would like it, actually, if the rest of the common law world, you know, which is basically the Commonwealth and one or two other places, all got together, had a big meeting and expelled America from the common law world because I don't think this is part of the common law system. You know, the, there's a thing, they used to have a line, which I rather enjoyed. Uh, you don't hear it so much now, but there used to be a line, 
that uh, such and such is, quote, repugnant to the laws of England. So there'd be some rinky-dink little island in the South Pacific, and they'd uh, come up with such and such a law, and the judge there would strike it down on the grounds that it was repugnant to the laws of England. The idea being that there are legal principles that are universal, and uh, and they're very basic. And you don't have... Uh, as you do here, huge competing statute laws that are different in every state um, and which erode. Again, it's a line I've used a lot just because that's the state I'm in. Uh, Lord Moulton's great thing that what matters is not the small number of things in a society you have to do and the small number of things you're forbidden from doing, but the space in between where man self-regulates according to the realm of manners. The realm of manners. And if you're lucky, the realm of manners is 80-85%. The minute you start having laws against this and laws against that, uh, the realm of manners gets eaten away from both ends and you're no longer in a free society. And that's why I disagree, again, with these legalistic, the legalistic sophistry that you see when... Um, Andy McCarthy and uh, Jonathan Turley and so forth are on TV yakking about this or that Trump thing. No, uh, most of these things, like actually my case, my case in D.C. is something that should be regulated through the realm of manners rather than by judges and jury. Anyway, um, I think the notorious Mr. J wanted to know what I proposed. Again, I did this after watching Conrad Black go through hell in Chicago. And everything that happened to Conrad is now being done to Trump, uh, which is why all the legalistic guys should have listened to me. Um, Andrew McCarthy, because he's a former federal prosecutor, I said it was absolutely disgusted by all this thing. What was done to Conrad is exactly the same as was done to Trump. You, You know, so with Trump, he was indicted in Georgia and 18 other people are indicted with him, some of whom, large numbers of whom, nobody's ever heard of. And that was exactly the same with Conrad. They indicted Conrad, and then they indicted all these other people underneath him. And the object of that is it's standard operating procedure. A couple of days ago, Jenna Ellis, again, like Alex Berenson, she's been on TV with me. She's a darling person, uh, very uh, bright, very moral. But, you know, they indict those guys in order to, uh, in order to uh, bully them into turning state's evidence or whatever, you, whatever the stupid phrase is. So as with Conrad, where they turned the number two and gave him this cushy deal, David Radler, Uh, and assured him, yeah, he'd still have to go to jail, but don't worry, he wouldn't have to go to an American jail. He'd go to this beautiful island off the coast of British Columbia where the prison offers courses in uh, horseback riding and musical theatre and all the rest of it. I must have quoted this on the show before, where (laughs) the uh, Conrad's lawyer uh, held up the brochure of this uh, prison and Judge Amy said, well, wait a minute, it's a prison with a brochure? <laughs> it was. And so the thing is here for Jen- Jenna Ellis and 
um, Sydney Powell and all these others are in the situation I've been in, you know, where they basically, yeah, uh, the the uh, the court system is corrupt, the appellate court is corrupt, corrupt. But if you're prepared to put in the years, eventually it'll get to the Supreme Court. And then because uh, Trump has appointed rock-ribbed conservatives like Amy Coney Barrett, uh, you stand a sporting chance of getting it all reversed. And that's fine if you want to spend a decade and five million dollars. Believe me, I bloody well know. And I well understand why Sidney Powell and Jenna Ellis and all the other guys, they're going to try to roll. Maybe even maybe even Mark Meadows and Rudy Giuliani in order to get to Trump. Uh, they just don't, you know, they don't want to. Be, I mean, they're going to. That's it. Does Rudy want to die in jail? You know, Rudy's uh, what is he pushing 80? Do you really want to die in jail, Rudy? Come on. This is actually witness bribery. I love the way, you know, it's supposedly illegal to bribe a witness, but this is what they do. I, I did all this at the time of the man trial. The bulk charges, um, the rolling, leaning on the, uh, all the, wit buying the witnesses, in effect, buying the witnesses. It's an evil system. Um, and, and I came up with, it's out there somewhere, I think it's at McLean's, might even be at National Review. I came up with seven, or maybe we'll republish it, I came up with seven or eight proposals uh, for things that they could do to, uh, to improve the system. Timothy McDonald says, Mark, you've mentioned in the past how America's dirty, stinking, rotten, corrupt justice system, trademark pending, maybe we should just cut to the chase and call it evil. Um, has too many advantages. Um, wait a minute. Haven't I just done the... Oh, um, uh, yeah, Notorious Mr. J. Too many uh, to buy proceedings which result in guilty verdicts 97% of the time. What substantive changes do you think need to be made to make the process fairer for defendants yet also allow the government to successfully prosecute actual criminals? Would you disallow the use of plea bargains to force the government to actually put on their case for all to see? Would you disallow use of witnesses for the prosecution that has been offered deals to turn on the defendant? Enough already. Tell us what you think needs to be done. Well, as I said, 15 years ago, plea bargains and deals I um, out with all uh, of that. The other thing you notice, you know, they bulk up these charges. Uh, a lot of these things are like mail fraud. You know, because in theory, like if you kill somebody, uh, murder is basically a, a state crime, you know, so, uh, or if you break into a bank uh, and uh, steal some money. That's a burglary is a, a state crime. So why it is that federal justice is crap on stilts is because they basically invented crimes that would give them jurisdiction over real crimes. So in other words, as we saw in Conrad's case, and as we'll be seeing in this, uh, in a lot of these Trump cases, you know, as we saw in Conrad's case, uh, half the crimes were like mail fraud and wire fraud. So, in other words, it's it's not that you stabbed a guy and stole 
$800. It's that you subsequently uh, wrote a check for $800 and stuck it in the mail, which is run by the United States Post Office, and thus gives the federal uh, government jurisdiction over your, quote, mail fraud. This is all bollocks. It's total bollocks, and it's corrupted uh, the uh, federal justice system completely inside out. And again, it encourages this thing which is one of the most repulsive aspects of American justice, where people invent crimes. You know, Trump is basically on, uh, on uh, trial for wholly invented crimes, but prosecuting these wholly invented crimes, the necessity of inventing FACO crimes corrodes real things like, for example, the right which predates America and that stupid conversation, uh, constitution that you're waving, Mark Levin, uh, the right to have legal representation, you know, which is becoming illegal now. Basically, uh, I'm, I'm uh, on trial with a guy whose lawyers, among other things, represented Alex Jones. So the shifty little lawyers on the other side are now doing things like, oh, did you know that uh, Mr. Simberg is represented by Alex Jones's lawyers? Everyone is entitled to a legal defense. And all this is, you know, some people, these pussy, soft right, soft left types mushing around in the middle. you got to butch up and know where this crap is going. On the Alex Berenson uh, thing, you know, you've got to start this whole thing, the quiet life crowd. Uh, oh, yeah, uh, well, they're OK, they're only destroying some of the basic tenets of justice, but it's to get Donald Trump. And actually, he, he said some mean things uh, on Twitter. And didn't he say he wanted to grab someone by the pussy? Well, maybe we should destroy the right to legal representation if it helps us get rid of Donald Trump. All that crowd has got to get real or the world is doomed, completely doomed. Uh, so we hope, <laughs> we certainly hope that uh, that uh, some of those people will get real before it's too late. Paddy, what a great name Paddy is. Paddy says, um, uh, well, I've lost it now. Oh, best of luck with the court case. Thank you very much for that, Paddy. And on that note, a final thought uh, from my last night out, as I said earlier, the Sods dinner in London last year. At my table that night, was Dame Maureen Lipman, a terrific actress and a conventional showbiz lefty. This gets back to what we've been talking about, turning people. Uh, Maureen was a conventional showbiz lefty until about a decade or so back when she noticed that her beloved Labour Party now seemed to be full of anti-Semites, and Maureen is Jewish. Uh, and shortly thereafter, Jeremy Corbyn became Labour leader, and she noticed that he actually seemed to be rather fond of Hamas and other chaps who actually enjoy killing Jews. Um, so it was great to see Maureen again at uh, at dinner. She made an observation. <laughs> 
She made an observation about my accent following my return to UK broadcasting after many decades away. She said on GB News that I sounded like a man pretending to be Irish. Uh, I am Irish. Well, semi-Irish anyway, so I wasn't quite sure how to take that. Um, and so it was like, that was the sort of level of conversation as we're all chit-chatting away. But we had a rather more sober exchange right at the end of the evening about the wholly transformed world in which our poor children will have to survive. Among her other activities, Maureen appears in the blockbuster British soap opera Coronation Street. It's shown around the world. It's one of the few watched programs on the CBC in Canada. And I thought about our final exchange that night when I read the news stories in the London papers this week about how what with all the pro-Hamas crowd out on the streets in every major city and London synagogues and kosher restaurants getting attacked, the producers of Coronation Street have offered to provide Maureen with security guards. Security guards for being a Jew in 21st century England. This is where we are now, said Dame Maureen, before denouncing her fellow lefties as, quote, bleeding heartless liberals. When babies were garroted, women dragged by their hair, and a family had eyeballs gouged out and fingers chopped off in front of their children. Do they really think that Israeli blockades on the border with Gaza a justification for such acts of violence. Those bigots, do they have no soul as well as no judgment? These bleeding, heartless liberals, shame, shame, shame on every one of you. She's addressing her fellow showbiz colleagues. And so she can continue to live in London uh, because ITV have graciously offered to provide security guards at their expense, because all the showbiz types she thought she knew so well have inhaled deeply of Hamas's bloodlust. Here is Maureen Lipman in Happier Times with her co-star Emily Morgan in the musical Wonderful Town. If you know of a wonderful town... Uh, do let us know, because for Jews, from Paris to Montreal, London to New York, uh, these wonderful towns seem a lot less wonderful than they used to be. Why, oh why, oh why, oh, why did I ever leave Ohio? Why did I wander? What lies yonder when life was so cozy at home? while I wandered. Why did I fly? Why did I roam? Oh, why, oh, why, oh, did I leave Ohio? Maybe I'd better go. Oh, 
Bruce and Eileen, Ohio was stifling. We just couldn't wait to get out of the place. With Ma saying, Ruth, what, no dates for this evening? And Pop with Eileen, do be home, dear, by ten. Ah! Those gossipy neighbors and everyone yakking who's going with who. <laughs> and dating those trips that I've known since I'm four. The Kiwanis Club dance. On the basketball floor. Cousin Maud with her lectures on sin. What, what a bore. Jerry Black. Cousin Mill. Astronaut. Hannah Finn. Just hopeless. Babbity. Stuffy. Provincial. Thank heaven we're free. And Maureen Lipman as the McKinney sisters, Eileen and Ruth, in the London revival of the musical Wonderful Town, a song by Leonard Bernstein, Betty Comden, and Adolph Green. Why, oh, why, oh, why, oh, why did I ever leave Ohio? That's the way I'm going to be feeling in the D.C. Superior Court next week. Dear, oh, dearie, oh, dear, why did I ever leave New Hampshire? I'll work on that. I knew uh, just about everyone connected with that show, Wonderful Town, and I do mean everyone, not just the composer, Leonard Bernstein, not just the lyricists, Betty Comden and Adolph Green, not just the director, George Abbott, not just the choreographer, Donald Sadler, a lovely man, but the author of the original source material's daughter, Ruth McKinney wrote autobiographical stories for The New Yorker about her younger sister, Eileen, and they made a hit play out of them, My Sister Eileen, and then a film, and then a musical, and then a TV sitcom, and poor Eileen McKinney never saw any of those, because her husband ran a stoplight and killed both of them while they were driving to Los Angeles airport to board a flight for the opening of the Broadway show bearing her name. She was 27. The McKinney family history is not one for faint hearts. Ruth stopped writing after her sister's death and married a guy called Richard Branston. On Ruth's 44th birthday, her husband killed himself. Happy birthday and many happy returns. They had a daughter named for Ruth's beloved sister Eileen, and Eileen Branston 
This is what I mean when I say I know everyone connected with Wonderful Town. Eileen Branston grew up to become the judge at the New York Supreme Court who upheld my victory over cockwombling Carrie Katz and CRTV in their bazillion-dollar lawsuit against me a couple of years back. Thank you, Judge Branston. Small world. I had the pleasure of telling... Maureen Lipman at that sods dinner last year, that she'd played the mother of my judge. Six degrees of Maureen Lipman. Maybe we'll do another round next week. Stay safe, Dame Maureen. Stick with Stein Online this weekend. Rick McGuinness on the movie beat, and we shall have the third and final part of my video deposition under oath in the matter of Michael E. Mann versus Mark Stein. As I just said to Maureen, stay safe, stay free, stay well. See you in court Monday morning. Clubland Q&A is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. All rights reserved.